You're listening to Library Talks from the New York Public Library. I'm your host, Aidan Flax-Clark. Today on the show, English novelist Sarah Perry. You probably know Sarah Perry's name from her last novel, The Essex Serpent. She was at the library a couple weeks ago to speak with me about her new book, Melmoth. Melmoth is inspired by a 19th century Gothic horror novel of the same name. Sarah Perry's version is set in modern-day Prague and follows an English woman who slowly becomes obsessed with the legend of this wandering demon named Melmoth. It's spooky, it's scary, and there are all kinds of dark twists and turns in the novel, which isn't surprising when you find out that Sarah was super high while she wrote this book. We'll talk about that more in the conversation. It's the perfect Halloween read, and let's just get to Sarah telling you more about the book and our conversation here at the library last week. Can we talk about your book? Please do, yes. Great. Now, it was published yesterday, so I'm assuming that everyone here has read it and finished, yes? <laughs> but perhaps yeah. for, you know, the lazy few who haven't, you can tell them a little bit what it's about. Okay, yeah. Um, so it's set in contemporary Prague, and a, a really boring, drab woman called Helen is living like a really self-denying life uh, won't allow herself any pleasure or any friends. Sounds exciting so far. It sounds, sounds great. Um, it's my strip Baptist upbringing making itself felt. Um, and she is handed a manuscript by a friend which details sightings throughout history of a woman in black who is always watching everything that happens that is most awful and most wicked, but not just vast atrocities, little failures of courage, and children, for thousands of years, have been told, for 2,000 years, have been told, if you can feel the hairs on the back of your neck lift, it's because Melmoth is watching you, because she knows what you've done. Helen becomes a bit obsessed with this legend, and eventually she starts to think that Melmoth is watching her. Um, and so the book has manuscripts in the grand tradition of Gothic fiction from various sightings of Melmoth, and it has this present-day narrative set in Prague in winter. Why is it set in Prague? For like a really, do you want the really honest answer? Yeah. So um, someone emailed me and said, are you writing a novel set in Prague because there's a fellowship going? And I went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd been planning to write Melmoth for a really long time. Um, and my first two books were set in East Anglia, which is where I was born and brought up, where I live now, and it's, it's the, the east coast of England, and it's all marshes and flint churches and all of this. And, and I had begun writing, yeah, another book set here, and felt lazy and felt like I was treading water, and that in order to continue to challenge myself to new language, new forms, new images, that I should go overseas. Um, and I had my eye on, east, on sort of mainland Europe, um, a different form of architecture, a different form of the Gothic, and then this email came, and uh, as, as chance would have it, I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and did you get the fellowship? Of course I did, yeah. <laughs> so I was the uh, UNESCO City of Literature Writer-in-Residence in Prague for January and February 2016. Huh. And did you work in the National Library? I did, yeah. So um, I have to ask because we're in a library. It's, absolutely. You know, contractually yeah, obligated. and when we, when we went to look around it, it actually it has a similar feel, but on like a, a very tiny scale to, to the big reading room here. So um, it's really gothic and it has a sort of vaulted plaster ceiling um, with screaming babies 
coming out of the plasterwork. And because it's Prague, it has an absolutely gigantic cast iron radiator that's, that's honestly like 20 feet high at one end. And uh, a big mural from like the history of the Czech language and ranks and ranks and ranks of desks with a brass lamp and a little brass number on it. And um, I'm the proud high holder of a library card um, and spent a long time researching there. Um, and had you been attracted to Prague before that? Yeah, in a, in a kind of really weird way. Um, so I play the piano. I'm very cool. And uh, <laughs> I like to play classical music on the piano. And when I was a teenager, our school orchestra um, did Smetner's Mav Last. Do any of you know it? It's like a really nice symphonic poem. Mav Last means my country. Smetner's a Czech composer. And the most famous piece from it is the Voltava. And it's this incredibly beautiful flowing piece of music about the river Voltava. And I played the piano part in the school orchestra, my little school uniform. Um, and I loved it so much I stole the sheet music and refused to give it back so I could play <laughs> it at home. Um, and... I just remember thinking it was so, there was something about it that was so evocative of things different from the little Essex town where I lived and that I rarely left. And then when I got the fellowship, I arrived and they showed me to my flat and I looked out of the window and the Voltava was just the other side of the window. Wow. And the first thing I did the night I arrived on the 2nd of January was open the windows, put my laptop on the windowsill light a really strong Czech cigarette, which like <laughs> sandpaper on your lungs, and just lent out and played Smetner like out into the air. And it was heavy snow, and a whole flock of swans flew up river through the snow while I was sort of playing Smetner into the air. It was amazing. Do you think you can make that more romantic? No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all true. This is the thing. Um, and it was one of these really weird moments where you start to feel like time really isn't linear, that like actually the reason... I stole the music when I was 13 was because in some way I knew that I would wind up there. And so You're that's in, why in it felt like mine. Matthew McConaughey is like coming <laughs> off the shelf. To... Yeah. Playing his bongos. Yeah. So did, did setting it in Prague end up defining the novel in any surprising ways that, you know, say if you had set it in London or whatever, wouldn't have yeah. happened? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think the depictions of Prague in the book are touristy. I mean, they are. They're focused that, you know, you'd have to live in the Czech Republic for 20 years and be fluent in Czech, which is not an easy language, mm. to write a book which is not enamored with the romantic side of it. And I decided to exploit that because it's a Gothic novel. It was always going to be the most kind of deeply Gothic of all my books. And key to the Gothic is this very tangible, swoony sense of place conveyed in a way that's hyper real, it's like slightly too much. So I was able to indulge my eye and my complete infatuation with the cobblestones and the Voltava and the boats going up and down and um, you know the Gothic edifices and the church where there's the arm of a saint desiccated and hanging in chains by a door, all of that stuff. Um, to kind of lend this kind of intoxicating atmosphere that that the reader would be kind of pulled into. Well, it is quite intoxicating. I have to agree about that. Thank you. Um, can we talk a little bit about Melmoth the Wanderer, the novel that inspired yours? Charles Maturin, am I pronouncing his name? I don't know. I say Maturin. Maturin. And I heard someone really 
pretend just go Matarin like he'd been French. I am me. definitely. He not was Irish, do that. so there's no need for that sort of thing. Um, so when when did you first discover this book? What made you so inspired by that you had to make a new version? So I, my PhD was in the Gothic, and I can remember my supervisor in a very apologetic voice saying, "You're gonna have to read Melmoth the Wanderer." And uh, okay, because um, it's huge um, and it's incredibly violent. I mean, it's it's completely depraved. Do you want to hear one of the things that happens in Melmoth the Wanderer? Okay, this is, this is like this is this long in the book. A monk has been given a job, and his job is to watch outside the door of a cell where a monk and his lover, a woman, have been walled up inside a cell to starve to death. And this monk is so pious and so sanctimonious, he's really pleased about this, you know, that he gets this chance to watch and hear the suffering of these people, because the monk should never have had a lover. So he listens, and on the first day they plead to be released. On the second day they scream desperately and they pray to God for help. On the third day there's silence. On the fourth day they seem to cling to each other and declare their love. On the fifth day there's terrible screaming and the monk's listening the whole time. Silence on the sixth day. On the seventh day, they open the door. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Oh, no, I, it's funny. That's why I'm laughing. Um, so <laughs> they, they open the door. And the man, in his desperation, has tried to eat the woman while she was still alive. And he died in the act of self-cannibalization, of like eating his own hand. That's the funny part? Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> and then, because this is very maturine, he will always turn the screw a bit further. They bring out the monk and his lover and the woman's hair falls back from her head, and the monk sees that it's his sister, and that he has listened to his sister starve to death for seven days, and that actually he was the one being punished for something that he did wrong. So all of those seven days was his punishment. That's one paragraph in a book roughly 650 pages long. And so you were just like, I gotta do this. Yeah, <laughs> because it is, it's gleefully violent. Uh -huh gleefully absurdly wickedly violent and quite funny in the way that extreme kind of like theater of blood type violence is but it's also really angry so maturin had a very profound social conscience and he would in his sermons he would talk about the po the irish poor and he would say is this not your responsibility to his congregation so it is a horror novel it's very violent and very theatrical but it's also a satire on the established church. It's an angry treatise against political corruption. And I just thought, my God, you can really have your cake and eat it with the <laughs> Gothic, can't you? And so I had the idea, what if I wrote a version of Melmoth, but made Melmoth a woman and set it in the present day and made the anger about what's happening now and what has happened in the past. And not quite as gleefully violent. No because I have a bit more of a conscience, I think. He said, he wrote to Walter Scott, a friend of his, and he said, I will out-Herod all the Herods, and I'm just a bit too squeamish for you'll, that. You'll go like half-Herod. Yeah, right. yeah, the, the semi, yeah. <laughs> Not the full, never go the full Herod, yeah. And I, I seem to remember that you said you chose to make Melmoth a woman, among other reasons, because there aren't enough good female villains. Yeah. Is that right? I remember being really young and not at all tutored in feminism. So I was brought up sort of biblical fundamentalist. So it's not as if anyone would have mentioned this in my presence, but just outrage that women never got to be the monsters. Yeah. Um, I found out about Camilla years later, but um, Frankenstein and Frankenstein's creature and 
Dracula, you know, Richard III, you know, all of the great kind of Milton, Satan, they're always male. And so I wanted to kind of redress the balance. For any reason other than the obvious reasons? No, not really. And um, partly also to try and do something that I didn't feel had been done. Yeah. I mean, obviously, subsequently, I grew up and found out that there have been lots of kind of attempts to redress the balance, but it was my... I was striking my blow. So something about his novel, and I guess about goth, some goth, gothic novels generally, is that they take this form of sort of nested stories, manuscripts buried within a narrative that then become the narrative, and your book does the same. And I was curious what the technical challenges are of doing that, because it's so many voices and styles, and you have to have this sort of through line of the narrative. It's yeah. really impressive. Thank you. Um, it was really good fun, actually. Partly because of the playfulness of it, and I, I like playing, and I think about my readers constantly, um, how to amuse and challenge and deceive them. And one of the great joys for me has been um, finding that I've really pulled a fast one on people. So um, I invented a legend, like an institutionary legend for Melmoth, that she was one of the women who saw Christ risen and she denied it and that's why she was cursed. And a national newspaper reviewed it and said, um, so Sarah Perry has written her take on the ancient Melmoth legend. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, and uh, I had a tweet from someone saying, um, I'm just really pleased to see that you're writing about those Cornish folk ballads about the mine collapse. And I went, yeah, that's absolutely what I did. Do you know, it's funny, though, because when I saw the name of your book, I was like, oh, yeah, that's like that old story. That's like I was positive it was a thing that yeah. existed. I mean, it's it has a big link to the one the legend of the wandering do. Uh -huh. um, but I'm really interested in the kind of common currency of these legends, you know, like the way most societies have a flood myth, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so there, so there was that element, the playfulness. Um, also, I'm really impatient and I bore very quickly <laughs> <laughs> and I gave myself the treat of switching between my gothic narrative voice that speaks in the second person sometimes, then a letter written in 1637, and then the manuscript of this kind of depressed old man recalling his youth. So that was good, but, but always trying to maintain. Like the best books I feel are whodunits or, or what, what is it? Um, and so always trying to have the reader, yep, okay, fine, but is she real or not? That being the central question of the book. Now, was there anything in his novel, aside, I guess, from the gleeful violence that you like deliberately sought to avoid? Yep, he had a love affair. And I just, in Melmoth the Wanderer, Melmoth has sold his soul for 150 extra years on Earth, which isn't that bad a curse compared to what my Melmoth is going through. So he finds a very beautiful, very innocent young woman and deliberately degrades her and makes her unhappy. So because only a degraded woman would want to be with him. And it's actually really romantic. <laughs> Doesn't sound it, but it has a really great sex scene at the end. Um, so I thought about having my Melmoth have a romance, but I couldn't make it fit with her desperate melancholy yeah. and with the nature of her appeal which is that she says to people I'm desperately lonely take my hand and come away with me and the minute that becomes kind of sexualized in any way with any of her characters it means all the other forms of appeal l lose something so I didn't want her to have a connection 
to one of her targets that was m stronger or more intense than all of the other ones. Because when she does appeal to people, she does it with a, a kind of frighteningly in intense form of love, mm. actually. Um, but I should point out, by the way, I'm dancing around a lot of the details of the book because part of the magic of reading this is discovering what's in it. So if we're talking around the plot and stuff, and that's why, because you should just pick it up and <laughs> discover it for yourself. Um, so continuing to dance around the experience of the book, <laughs> you were uh, super high while you wrote a lot of oh, this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how did that I happen? Was. So uh, I ruptured a disc in my spine. And, and um, because I never do anything by half measures, I did it absolutely catastrophically. And uh, my <laughs> again, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable because it's really horrible to remember. But um, my disc matter completely filled my spinal canal. Um, and if anyone's ever had nerve pain, uh, I invite you to imagine the largest nerve in your body being crushed inside your spinal canal. It wasn't very nice. Mm. So um, I was on seven or eight different types of medication, including addictive ones, opioids, tranquilizers, nerve painkillers, um, for weeks, and then off them and then back on. Um, so while I was doing the first draft, I was in this curious state where the line between imagination and hallucination became very blurred. And I don't really think I hallucinated, but certainly my imagination was more solid and um, occasionally more unwelcome than it had ever been before. Um, and I think also, perhaps even more pertinently, it gave me courage. Because writing a gothic horror novel based on a forgotten gothic classic involving multiple voices and trying to balance uh, bearing witness to real atrocity with like supernatural flocks of jackdaws swirling around Prague is like, quite a daft thing to do in some ways but I, I was too high to care and I just thought I, I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna do this thing I was completely possessed with the desire to write this particular book um how on earth I wrote it under those circumstances I'm not really sure like literally you don't know what happened when I look back over the period of time when I wrote it I can't really remember long periods of study I remember surgery and a terrible burn and, and all of this stuff. Um, and then when the surgery was successful and I was no longer high, I had this manuscript that then had to be edited and worked and, and you know, the... Um, and at some point there was two months in Prague. In yeah, there. yeah, yeah. That was before oh, the pain. Okay. Yeah. So it's a strange, it was a strange gestation. In Prague, I did very little writing, but an enormous amount of wandering around, hmm. staring at jackdaws. And the novel turns out to feel very hallucinatory, so I guess it makes sense yeah. that that line was blurred. Yeah. Um, you, you, I mean, you wrote about this in The Guardian, that's how I knew about it. Yeah. Um, and, and you talked about how, when you were young, you had this um, perception of all the sort of drug literature, the De Quincey's and the Burroughs and stuff, and you held them in pretty low regard. Yeah. But that changed for you yeah it totally changed and I I mean I feel as if I should have known this but I had always found the cult of the drug adult writer a bit prurient and childish mm. um, because it seemed to me that it was a weakness to lose oneself to laudanum or to whatever um, and then it happened to me 
And I began to research why these people had taken this medication. And I found that the culture, the literary culture of drug taking and of opium novels is a culture of pain. So Samuel Taylor Coleridge, we all associate with opium addiction and, um, you know, Kublai Khan and so on. He had terrible pain in his knee, terrible pain in his eye, took laudanum for it. Um, same goes for, you know, De Quincey had trigeminal neuralgia, Shelley had headaches, Kurt Cobain had a twisted gut. That's why he took heroin. Um, and it became a really interesting examination of the fact that pain itself is mind-altering, the medication you take for pain is mind-altering, and the sheer euphoria that you're not in agony anymore is also mind-altering. Yeah. So actually, drug literature and opium novels, opium poetry is pain poetry, but pain is kind of more altering and more complicated um, and more textured than I think people often realize. Virginia Woolf said like, <laughs> she had headaches, I mean, so what, and flu. Um, and she said, oh, you know, we, we have no language for pain. And then she actually said the English language has no words for the shiver or the headache, thus using the two words that she needed. And actually, there is a huge lexicon of pain. Um, Galen identified 12 types of pain thousands of years ago. So, um, yeah, it really interested me, like, like where language will no longer suffice and then how you use language to describe pain. And the book has, it's used in the book, let's it, say. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. Do, but do you feel, despite Wolf being incorrect and having used shiver and headache, that there are, having experienced these extreme pains, that there are actual limits to describing that? I, I mean, I don't think so. Hmm. I haven't... I have not yet failed to find the language for a version of pain that I've been in. Um, and I've had, you know, nerve pain and muscle spasms and disc pain. These are all very different things. Um, but, but possibly the fact that I was high <laughs> enabled me to find the language. I don't know. And, you know, there is really good writing on pain. Hilary Mantel's great essay, Ink in the Blood, mm. um, is about her surgery and the pain she went through with that. And, and she she talks about Virginia Woolf when she just sort of shakes her head. <laughs> what were you thinking? Of course, of course, there's the language for it. Um, on the subject of pain, somewhere you said that after having experienced all of this, that you don't feel like you could write a book like The Essex Serpent again, one that's sort of gentle and on the mm. themes of friendship. Why is that? Um, I think I'm just older and sadder. But I don't regret that. You can't stay a bonny 32-year-old all your life. And it's not just the personal pain. It's also the world changing. Mm. And, you know, I'm only 38. But there was a time when the idea of what's happening in the world now would have been unthinkable because we seemed not to be tending towards entropy, but tending upwards. Um, I was briefly a civil servant in my 20s um, under a left-wing government. And I just sort of took it for granted that, of, co of course, we'll have equal marriage legislation. Of course, we will improve benefits. Of course, we'll fund hospitals better. I mean, naturally, what else would we do? And um, to see the reversal of these things has been a real shock um, and sort of sobered me up, I think. So, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm very fond of the Essex Serpent, but I'm too sad to write it now. But, like, not in a way that I regret at all. 
So, okay, this isn't going to be like a Tolstoy middle of his life saying like <laughs> everything I wrote before is garbage and now I'm just going to write like morality tales for children. <laughs> I hope not. Okay. I mean, I, I think you have to stand by the things that you do in, in what, you know, your relationships, your work, whatever it is, um, as, as being, if you, if you did it honestly at the time, mm -hmm. and I did write The Essex Serpent in full emotional and intellectual honesty, political honesty even, um, so... I ca you can't be ashamed of it, but just hope that you... Yeah, it's also a great book. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so speaking of the Essex Serpent, another thing I was curious about in your experience of writing Melmoth is that you became this worldwide bestseller of an author with the Essex Serpent. And I would imagine, maybe it was obviated by the drugs, but I would imagine that there were some pressures that either were put on you or that you put on yourself while writing Melmoth because of that. I was very lucky in that neither of my publishers, either in the UK or here, wanted me to do the Essex Serpent 2.0. Mm. I think they would have both been quite shocked if I'd have suggested that. And big commercial publishers very often want uh, a repeat half million sales. Um, and, and neither seemed in the least surprised by what I had in mind. Um, my biggest worry was the British hatred of success. So you would think that I would be concerned about um, trying to repeat praise, but I was worried about, this is my pessimism coming through, about being punished. For the uninformed American, I mean, you mean, oh can you explain God, the, the British, British hatred of success? Successful, but I mean, they can't bear it. They really can't. And the, and the media has a tendency across all, like whatever it is, politics, music, film, art, they will raise someone up, they will lift them up on their shoulders and then fling them back down again. And the British will very much champion the underdog. So with the Essex Serpent, no one had heard of me. It was a very modest advance. Um, you know, there was no uh, like grand announcements in the Frankfurt Book Fair that half a million pounds, you know, it was, what it was it, tiny publisher. Oh, hasn't she done well? Sarah who? Oh, that's nice. So everyone was sort of, you know, following in your wake. And then um, when you do well, then they'll they'll give you a punishment beating. And it's you know, it's not just me. It's it's happened. Um, it happens a lot, particularly to women. Huh. Um, so I was braced, which is a good job. Yeah, and I know it's been a little bit um, rocky. Yeah, in, in yeah. It's been really interesting because with Melmoth, I've had both the worst reviews. And the best. I mean, The Guardian called it like one of the best books of the century. Right, I think, yeah. yeah. And I was like, it's only 2018, but fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it went from like a real hatchet job, which we discard because it was by a, a fascist rag. Uh, <laughs> I'm not bitter. Um, and, and then up to this extraordinary encomium. So yeah, this is where you realize you just have to ignore it and crack on with the next book. Because if you listen to either of them, you go insane. Are you if, good if at that? I, huh? Are you good at that? No, terrible. Uh. Uh, because I really want approval and I want everyone to love me. Um, and I'm having to train myself that this is no uh, motive for writing novels, you know, for praise. I mean, it's a pretty common motive, right? It's, yeah, but it shouldn't be, as it may be for some people, uh, a, you know, a really deep one. Right. It would be nice for it to be a side, side serving to the main dish. Like artistic integrity and noble ideals. 
So when you do succeed in turning it off and just striving for all those noble ideals, how do you turn that stuff off? How do you ignore it? Just start the work, I think. Yeah. I have always been kind of besotted with language and storytelling. And, and I have a, with all of my books, including the one I'm working on now, I have a very similar working process, which is to have an idea for a book and then not do anything about it <laughs> for about 18 months to two years while it festers. So I do lots of long walks and long baths and swimming and um, thinking and embroidering and cooking. And the whole time it's going round in my head. And then when it feels like a book that I've read several times, so I know the whole thing, then I'll sit down, open a document, begin at the beginning and then write through to the end in like a very quick space of time. So none of my books have taken more than a few months to get to get the draft out. Wow. Um, and always start from the beginning, go through to the end, very few notes. Um, and as soon as I start that point, I'm just... The, the thrill of the language, of the play, of the risk, I just revel in it and I, and I don't really think about anything else. No one sees it. Nobody? No. Uh, my agent sees it when it's finished. Do you um, have any circle of friend? No. No. I started my next book and um, I said to my husband, you know, I just feel me and the Gothic are done. You know, <laughs> I just feel that I've finished a Gothic trilogy and I'm really moving on. And he said, that's nice, dear. And then he said, uh, what's your next book going to be? <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm, Okay, I'll risk it, I'll tell you. And read him the opening and he went, so, <laughs> you know how you said you're not going to write the gothic anymore? And I had a huge temper tantrum and went to bed without <laughs> a cup of tea. So this is what happens when you um, show people your work too early. You have to just leave it. So, yeah, I, I, I always give them to my agent first. Okay, so I won't ask about the next book. No, because I'll storm out when you say it's gothic. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you some questions about all of your books together? Because now yeah. that you have three novels, you yeah. can find like themes that go across. Uh -huh. It's not a coincidence. It's a coincidence when it's two yep. and not at three. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, something that jumped out at me right away is that all of your main characters in all the novels are escaping something. Mm. And a lot of them, they're pasts. Yeah. Um, and I wondered why that is. That's such a good question and something that I've never noticed before. Um, I think I'm right in saying that lots of us secretly, I don't know if I'm just projecting here, if we could flee in the middle of the night and pitch up somewhere else and start again, none of your failures and embarrassments following you around, new people, new scenes, m maybe we would. Um, and I know I have a slight habit of severing all ties. Hmm. So um, when I had proper jobs, um, I would work in a government department for two or three years and then just leave. And I wouldn't really speak to the people that I'd worked with. And then I'd move on to the next one. And um, I spoke to a vicar earlier this year about this. And she said, it's very Protestant. It's very Calvinist. Y you feel like everything that you've done up to a certain point just has to be washed away. With, you know, as with the blood of the lamb, yeah. and then you're redeemed and you can start again. So I, I guess there's this feeling that, A, that's a really good structural thing to do with a novel, mm -hmm. that, that escape and then uh, interpolation into like a new world where you've got a stranger disrupting things. And also, I guess maybe it speaks to some 
how many times have I threatened to just stay here and not go home? Like couple, quite a yeah. few, and I've been <laughs> here two hours. <laughs> I just keep saying I'm never going back. And like secretly, I kind you know, I have a husband, a whippet, and a cat. But like really, I want to stay here and like live in a bedsit and and wash my clothes and dry them on a radiator. And we're thinking again. of plans to try and keep you here. Yeah, so. <laughs> please do. <laughs> um, okay, another one uh, is loneliness. Melmoth, obviously, huge deal. Literally, she's saying, I'm so lonely. I've been so lonely. But, um, you know, all of your books feel like there are these ensemble casts of people who are all, like, being lonely near each other. And similarly, why do you think that is? Um, I feel like I'm in therapy now. (laughs) Um, I I didn't bring this chaise lounge, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, This is a really interesting question because I'm from a very large family, I'm quite gregarious and talkative and I'm married at 21 and until a couple of weeks ago I had genuinely never been lonely and I didn't really understand what it meant because occasionally people would say I'm just really lonely and I would think you got three kids and a job how do you have time to be lonely and I thought that loneliness was proper some like a proximal thing you know like mm. you're, you're not surrounded by people mm-hmm. and then um i had this very curious sensation in publication week in the uk of isolation from anyone who might say me too not in the hashtag me too way but in a in a oh, oh no i understand i get it yeah i get it and i suddenly realized that loneliness is kind of portable so it's not to do with you had a week off work and your partner was away Mm -hmm. and so you just sat alone in your house you can do that and not be lonely or you can be on a crowded tube train going between two busy houses and be very lonely so I think maybe the books have been me trying to write about something that felt quite exotic to someone who's never alone and occasionally does the odd tweet (laughs) Um, (laughs) the idea of loneliness seemed so extraordinary that maybe it was worth my investigation um and then yeah as i say a couple of weeks ago i suddenly went oh oh that's that's what lonely and and because it was me i texted about five people (laughs) and said i think i'm lonely can i just double check that that's what that's what this emotion is and they're like are you melmoth (laughs) (laughs) yeah someone i have been accused of of this of being melmoth yeah so I hadn't noticed that loneliness was a theme. Now you say it, it's it's so obvious. And and I find it, if if I'm allowed to find myself interesting, I find it very interesting that I, I genuinely had never been lonely until two weeks ago, but have been writing about it for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, can you talk about that more, this loneliness two weeks ago? What you're saying? It was a feeling of, there's a great Tom Waits song, Bear With Me. Does anyone here know Shiver Me Timbers by Tom Waits? You know where he says, nobody knows me? And he's saying goodbye to his wife and everything. And then he says, nobody knows me, I'm sailing away. And I, and I suddenly thought, like, no, nobody knows any of us. And maybe it was thinking about Melmoth that mm. made me think that, that she's the only person who knows people. Because so one of the things that she says when she visits people is, if everybody else knew what I know about you, they'd hate you. And they wouldn't be come anywhere near you, but I know, and I still want you. Won't you come away with me? Um, so I think it had been brewing this feeling of um, existential isolation. You know, the idea that does anyone know us? Because we all put on our best 
most likable fronts. Mm -hmm. We adapt to social situations, even our tones of voice. If I talk to someone from Essex, I develop a really Essexy accent. And if I talk to quite well-to-do people, I find myself becoming quite RP, <laughs> so they don't look down on me. When I go on holiday, Sorry, I always end up doing... Americans. Oh, re receive pronunciation, you know, like a BBC newsreader in 18, sort of 1900. Mm. Very crisp tones. Mm. Like that. <laughs> and I, I actually can't do an Essex accent unless I'm talking to someone. Well, I mean, I have an Essex accent, but it gets worse um, or better, depending on the way you look at it. So, yeah, it's just this feeling of um, of identity of how we construct ourselves and of what people would think if they really knew. Mm. So I think maybe Melmoth got me, you know, alone yeah. in my hotel room in London. Huh. Does anyone really know? Because if they did... And then suddenly you feel very lonely. Were there a lot of jackdaws outside the window? There were pigeons. <laughs> I mean, but the I think crows there of may the have been, Yeah, yeah, they are the, the London crow. Yeah. Um, okay, so one one last theme I want to ask you about is self denial. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, again, in Melmoth, your main character Helen, her big thing is that she is, you know, com totally denying herself yeah. to escape the secret in her past. But other characters in other books, Cora and the Essex Serpent, and I think of Hester and After Me Comes the Flood, are denying themselves in a more specific way about their sort of feminine identity or the stereotypes of womanhood that yeah. are expected of them that they don't meet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this idea of self-denial just keeps cropping up. So, I mean, it's the same question, which is, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, I, I feel like I should pay you for this, this excellent session me. of psychoanalysis. Um, I, you're right in that it's always the women. And this is something that I have grappled with for a very long time, is how we construct a female identity and how you deconstruct it. And does the deconstruction require the abandonment of some of the pleasures, in inverted commas, of being female? So when I wrote Cora Seaborn, for example, it was very important to me that she was examining in some way what made her a woman. And she was no longer a wife. She didn't think of herself as being much of a mother anymore. And so in what sense was she a woman? And um, in 2014, which seems like a lifetime ago now, I published an essay saying I'm not a woman writer because I don't feel myself to be particularly a woman. And it's sort of two years too early to have got the kind of retweets that it would get now, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> um, but I, I have felt that too, you know, in what sense am I female if it's not mere kind of biology, which I think we will accept is an unsatisfactory explanation. And... Certainly Helen, the things that she has denied herself are the kind of luxuries and sensualities that we think of as being fairly feminine. Um, and I'm interested in the idea of self-denial as self-punishment too. There's this amazing um, anecdote about the great um, philosopher, I can't remember his name, who sat in a tin tub denying himself everything. Who was it? You know, the oh, guy in the uh, tin Jim tub. Philosopher Man, yeah. I think. <laughs> be it. Anyway, he became legendary for his self-denial. Like he defecated in this tin tub and he scratched himself and it was all really awful. And uh, the king came and visited him 
and he stood over him and he said, he was a cynic basically, um, he was the first cynic, and the king kind of stood over him and said, but is there anything I can do for you? You're obviously a very great man. He said, yeah, you can get out of my light. So, so I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, um, there being a kind of moral virtue in suffering, which Di I don't actually Diogenes. think there is. Thank you, Diogenes yeah. in his tub. Yes. Tip of my tongue. Um, I study classics, it would be really shameful if I couldn't pull that. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, people try to pursue moral virtue by self-abnegation, and I'm not sure it, it works or it's necessary. And, you know, this isn't a spoiler, but there's a scene in which someone eats a piece of cake that was really important to write for a number of reasons, including the political ones, um, and how if you have denied yourself even the very simple pleasure of cake, what would it be like to finally give in and to feel that kind of rush, um, especially for a woman? Well, we're going to turn to the audience in a minute, so I'm going to ask you one last question okay. um, about guilt. Uh-huh. Because, again, this is something that is huge in all of your writing. And I know you had a very religious upbringing, so I have to imagine there are some connections between your preoccupations with guilt and your background. Is that mm -hmm. a fair...? I think that you are not way off the mark, yeah. Okay. But I don't think of it as being about guilt, but about sin, mm. um, which is obviously a very unpopular word. Now, to sin actually comes from a Greek sport of archery or spear throwing I think and um, to sin was simply to miss the mark so it's not a great wickedness um, it's to say that there is for all of us some standard of goodness or social norms that we strive for they may differ between us according to our lights and all of us just miss sometimes and that's what sinning is and of course I was brought up believing in original sin which is that all of us were congenitally predisposed to missing the mark mm. constantly, and nobody didn't. And I'm, I no longer worship anywhere regularly, but what remains with me is, if you like, a kind of benevolent interpretation of that, which is that if everybody is equally capable of missing the mark, we must all also be equally capable of redemption, forgiveness, grace, all of that stuff. So I wanted to write a book that suggested that there aren't good people and bad people, because that would be too convenient and too easy, and also you know, empirically unsound <laughs> as an observation. Um, Not but to rather mention boring. That, uh, yeah, and very dull. Yeah. Um, but rather that we're all equally capable of this sin, of this falling short. And so a lot of the characters who are either haunted by guilt or not, some of them don't feel it until Melmoth forces them to feel it. Right. Um, they're not monsters. None of them are monsters. But they've done monstrous things by failure of one kind or another. So I think it's I think it's a sin thing, which is very Puritan. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something hopeful in the way that you describe it, which I think is a pretty key element of your book, is that yeah. without saying anything about what happens, that there is hope in this book. Yeah. That's because my agent asked me to put some in. <laughs> she, uh, she like, right, just she, tack some on there. She somewhere. read the, she read the first <laughs> draft. And she says, bit bleak. <laughs> and I was still suffering uh, a bit then. And she said, but I don't think this is really how you feel. And, and we talked. And I, and, uh, and I understood that actually I the book in its first incarnation had done a disservice to my belief that there is light available to all of us all the way down. 
Um, and so my challenge then was to go back over it in my so newly sober and less tormented state and shine some light here and there. So hopefully you saw Melmoth is for sale outside. Sarah, I believe, will be signing copies of it for you. And um, you should all go buy it. It is really, truly an incredible novel. And please join me in thanking Sarah Perry for being with us Thank tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was really interesting. That was my conversation with English novelist Sarah Perry. Her new book, again, is Melmoth. And if you want to read it, which you should, you can go to any New York Public Library branch to find it, or you can check it out on our app, Simply E. Library Talks is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself. And our theme music was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. <laughs>